welcome back to another episode of Echoes on Air. Um, I'm your host, Janelle, and uh, we are missing Chris today, but he sends his love. Um, and he's leaving me out here to look really, really ignorant about a topic I've never learned about, which I'm totally cool with. You know, I don't mind telling people I don't know things. Um, so we're going to be talking about um, environmental justice and deciding, like, what is that anyway? Um, it is something apparently that affects us all because, you know, we all live in the environment. So we're about to learn uh, a little bit about that. And I have, I'm going to shout out my Facebook Hive because they hooked me up with some really, really cool people that I got to meet this week. Um, so I am going to start with Misty, if you want to introduce yourself, and then we'll go through the other panelists here, and then we're going to get uh, right to it. Hello. I'm Missy O'Quinn to Samoni Fa. Um, I'm an organizer here in Dallas for Sierra Club's Beyond Cold campaign, um, as well as being the uh, community engagement liaison, I think is officially the title uh, for Downwinders at Risk. Thank you, Jim. Uh, so yeah, I, I work on um, clean air and environmental justice issues here in Dallas. Thank you. Miss Marsha Jackson. Oh, I'm Marsha Jackson. I am the chair of Southern Sector Rising, one of the co-chairs. I'm also a board member of Downwinders, and um, I'm um, involved heavily with, uh, I am an activist, environmental activist, and I am heavily involved with uh, Shingle Mountain that's near my home. Brittany? Hi, my name is Brittany Peterson. I am a third-year law student at Penn State Law. Um, I'm I guess, focusing my studies on environmental and energy law. Um, I'm also the associate director of PERC, which is a statewide nonprofit Pennsylvania Environmental Resource Consortium, uh, where we connect colleges and higher education universities across the state of Pennsylvania um, and distribute resources and send out information related to environment. Um, and sorry, I also co-head uh, community um, anti-racist ministry community at my church, which is a UCC church in State College. Fabulous. And last but not least, Mr. Nathan Doris. Hi, I'm, uh, I'm Nathan Doris. I uh, currently live in Searcy, Arkansas, so Central Arkansas. I relocated here um, just seven months ago or so. Um, I have a history of organization and, and action with uh, sort of radical alternative communities. Spent a couple of years in Atlanta the Catholic Worker House, and then um, some time in Virginia with a permaculture demonstration site and House of Hospitality, and um, currently a doctoral student at the at Memphis Theological Seminary in their program in land, food, and faith formation. So we're looking at the intersections of Christian ethics and uh, land and food justice. So that already, just with y'all's introductions, tells me and the world how like super multifaceted this entire topic is, just, just with your introductions alone. Um, and so I'm going to switch it up, but you know, you, you guys know if you're listening to the podcast, you know I'm, I'm the one with all the questions, but I'm going to switch it up. I want to look at the actual definition of environmental justice as um, as defined by Wikipedia, the greatest source in all the land that has all of the information correct, right? Um, but <laughs> I'm gonna read this definition and 
um, maybe hopefully you guys can kind of break down a little bit of what that is, and then we'll go back to what is environmental justice specifically to you. So according to Wikipedia, um, environmental justice is a term that has two distinct uses with the more common usage describing a social movement that focuses on the fair distribution of environmental benefits and burdens. The other use is an interdisciplinary body of social science literature that includes theories of the environment and justice, environmental laws and their implementations, environmental policy, um, and planning and, and governance for development and sustainability and political ecology. Um, so that is a very, very, very wordy definition on that second particular usage. Um, so can you guys maybe speak a little bit to that definition and then also infuse what it means to you specifically since you're all in very different sectors? Um, environmental justice on um the definition where it says they are environmental benefits and burden, that might supposed to be what happened with environmental justice, but we'll so often see that it is not common and it's not happening just uh, just so in uh, in our areas. Uh, what we're fighting is, I should say, more of uh, environmental injustice instead of justice. I would love to see the justice of Howland, but uh, back in Black and Brown communities, um, the environmental justice is so easily dishonored because we we now see that uh, the injustice is happening. Just now, uh, where I am now, 198,000 uh, tons of shingle uh, dump here, where you never would see that being environmental justice anywhere else. Benefits and fair, no, you, can, you cannot say that would be beneficial and fair in this area at all. So, you know, um, Environmental benefit, justice, that would be common, but that is so hard now to find that they're actually um, implementing that in my area. I think um, playoff that the two definitions you offered, I kind of see them as two types of environmental justice. So there's like a procedural environmental justice, and then there's the substantive. So procedurally, it's, you know, the second definition, the idea that it's this study of looking at the environment, looking at the intersection of sociology, political science, anthropology, economics, um, and how, like, how those factors play on how these communities are treated with regards to environmental benefits and burdens, as Marcia was saying. Um, so I think ultimately procedural environmental justice is more that all people need a voice in environmental decision-making and through procedural environmental justice, we can lead to substantive, which is that first definition you said of equally distributing the benefits and burdens of the environment. Um, so I think it's impossible to get to that without actually including people that are harmed in the conversations. So procedurally having that justice as well. I don't know, looking at it, I think that EJ is so big. It encompasses so much. Um, on so many different levels, uh, like you were saying, policy, um, advocacy, you know, I find that it's become something that's more, it's become more uh, talked about since Corona has hit. It's, it's picking up speed. People are starting to understand, okay, this isn't something that just affects one demographic or the other. Um, disproportionately, yes, brown people, are more affected. You don't see um, a lot of industry 
placed directly in more affluent neighborhoods. But ultimately, everybody is affected by this. Like, it's it's not an issue that is just one person. So I think more people are starting to realize that it is a, a wide stretching issue that does affect us all just in different ways. So one thing I've noticed is um, among sort of different facets of social justice movements, sometimes something will start and then the terminology terminology around it changes with critique. And so I'm thinking particularly like about food issues. And so, um, and environmentalism is part of this. So we started sort of with an environmentalist movement and there's environmentalism. And in a lot of ways that was really um, coded in white language and the white imagination. Um, and then some folks came along and they were like, yeah, no, that needs to change. Um, and so we began to talk about what environmental justice looks like. And with food, we started talking about food access and food security. And then folks came along and said, no, we need, we need food just. It's not just about like our own personal decisions. It's about structural problems. And, um, and then we moved even kind of further toward conversations about food sovereignty. And so, um, I see like the language of environmental justice as a move toward sort of more uh, deep and radical analysis that pushes us toward sort of broader imaginations of, yeah, exactly like how this affects us and our like our political systems and imaginations. So that it's funny that you talk about language. One of the things as you know, like I said, I crash course. Um, one of the things that I noticed is uh, the use of the the phrase environmental racism, um, which is from, and of course, please correct me if I'm wrong. Um, three YouTube videos does not a professional make, but um, the, the, it, from what I understand is that's kind of how it started is this, this conversation of, of environmental racism and then it changed to justice. And so I wonder if maybe you could talk a little bit when you're talking about the way that the wording um, has changed and why you think that's important, because I think um, that may actually lead us into, into another question of understanding um a little bit more about this benefits and burdens that you're talking about and how that's affected when you're talking about environmental racism and, and so on. So I wonder if maybe you could speak a little bit to the, the change of, of, of the wording as a narrative. Yeah. Yeah. So when you look at environmental racism, we're looking at what our direct environment looks like, what we're exposed to. And that's what I was speaking to when you look uh, here in Dallas, most industry and mixed zoning is done south of I-30, where most brown people are. You look at what it has been allowed to happen, because, of course, that's that's when you get into the EJ, the broader idea that it's not just, oh, it's there. Well, how did it happen? What are the different layers of issues that has brought us to this point? And I think that that's what EJ explores. It forces you to look at the different layers of what are we really looking at? And so it's it's not just industry, it's it's zoning, it's job availability, it's food deserts. All of these things are now touched by this concept. That I... I want to get to like some very specific definitions um, because I think that 
and this, again, I, I'm hoping that this is an intro um, conversation because even when I've talked to some friends, we, we, we know what the word environmental is and we know what the word justice is and we put it together and we're like, cool, we get it. So I want to actually talk very specifically about some, some of these definitions. So when you're saying things like um, food desert, when you're saying things like um, food sovereignty, Nathan, I think you mentioned, when we're talking about burdens and benefits with respect to environment, what is that? Um, to talk, to, talk to us like we have no idea what, what, we're, what you're saying because you guys have been doing this and we know no things. I live in Plano right now. I can count several sprouts, Whole Foods, Central Market, Walmart, Target, anything you could think you needed. We're even getting a velvet taco. That's available. That's available to me. So I have access to anything that I need. Let's go to Oak Cliff. You want to get to a Whole Foods? You got to drive to Cedar Hill. That's 15, 20 minute drive. So for someone that might not have access to a vehicle, now I have to see, can I catch a bus? or get a ride. It's not easily accessible. And so when you have people that don't have access to better things, they have to deal with what's available. And that's where we have food deserts or just flat out lack of amenities in brown and black neighborhoods. We're discussing the environmental, the injustice part of it. In my area, I live off of 45 and um, 310. But for as the food desert, batch plant, environmental disasters. I live in District 8. District 8 has have a lane plating. That's the environmental injustice. We have, uh, used to be deep woods. Deep woods had to be fought, uh, fought by the city of Dallas. The city of Dallas had to pay, pay for that. You know, that's again, illegal dumping in the southern part of Dallas. There again, here I am, Shingle Mountain, right next to my house. Again, that's another legal dumping, and that's still here. 198,000 tons of shingles. That's polluting our neighborhood. That's infecting our health. It's still here. Now, uh, these areas here in the southern part of Dallas that you cannot go in another northern part of Dallas, none of these are involved. And uh, forest transportation, we have no kind of public transportation in my area. High-speed internet, we have no high-speed internet. So uh, when you say when we talking about environmental injustice, it begins there. You know, it's no kind of improvement. I've been here 25 years and it still have not been improved. You think that uh, just recently, as of yesterday, that the city council in District 8 made a statement about a press release that he put a legal stop to uh, um, illegal dumping. That's the individual. Why can't they go to an individual and put a stop to it? But it's a business dumping illegal 198,000 tons of shingles, and they could not do anything there. So, you know, and then when we get to talking about environmental justice, the community has, um, they, they're uneducated, really, about environmental justice. When we say batch plants, they don't know anything about batch plants. But all they have to do is just be educated, and we need to be. We need to have them educated more. We first started, and I know I'm probably jumping, uh, Janelle, and I'm sorry, but um, we first started uh, fighting batch plants and lane plating. Can you lane tell plating us what, is a, what is batch plants? Go ahead and tell us yeah. what that is. Cement plants, and they're uh, polluting the neighborhood. Can't breathe. There's a lot of uh, batch plants in Joppy. 
we just bought one that was going to be placed here near a block from my house and we already fighting shingle mountain so those batch plants are just manufacturing cements and they just calling all kind of pollution in the air you know and that that's a breathing issue for us also so all that that's a that's a big part of environmental injustice these these things are bought in the black and brown neighborhood and lower income. I was just reading a, a documentary that was sent to me today, a report about food desert. The reason why big companies don't come to Southern Dallas is because of the high crime. Well, the report I just read that they did on it, they did it for the city of Dallas. Well, you know, you would be really strange to see that North Central and Central has higher crime than South Dallas. So I sit, I laid there today and I said, oh, so they've been telling us all the time the reason why we have a food desert here because high crime, that's untrue. I'm going to do my research. You know, it might take me a while, but uh, these city officials, I know they said, we said we're not talking political, but you know, it really burns me up. <laughs> you know, when we go out there and vote and support these people and they turn their back on us, I have a problem. I really have an issue with that. Um, right now, my community is black and brown. So I'm the spokesperson. You know why? Because when we first started speaking about this, it was retaliation against my neighbors because they're brown. So I, I, I really, really have a big issue about it. And the environmental, that's one of my heart. And I guess I'm going to go to my grave because I'm going to keep fighting. I was affected by it. I never would think that living in my neighbor 25 years, that, uh, I'm happy experience when I'm experiencing now. The walk outside, um, because of fiberglass flying in the air and it's polluting and it's itching and it's eating our skin up, you know, and I, I, my voice, I hopefully it'll hang up, hold up during this podcast, but doing uh, just sitting out there because of the shingle mountain in my area is polluting us and it's airbound that those particles, those pollutants are just going in our throat and I bet. We invest in that and it's circling our vocal cords. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine that? But you know, you hear people saying that um, they're fighting for climate air, fighting for a clean air, you know, environmental. We just had this issue about environmental justice, what we're talking about right now. But the city of Dallas had a fit to pass CCAP. CCAP is not doing anything for us here in South Dallas. None whatsoever. We fought trying to get Shingle Mountain cleaned up. But they wanted CCAP so they could start as something else. But there again, they leaving us left out. It's the optics. It's the optics. Yeah. Well, so I, and now I'm going to follow you on the jumping around, which is also why I love this, because somewhere <laughs> somebody's going to take me to something else and I'm totally fine with it. But I'm going to follow you on that because um, one of the things that I, one of the videos that I sent you guys, um, it was a quick video, which if you're listening, I'll have it in the podcast notes. Um, but it essentially talked about under all the administrations, the difference in, I guess, how environmental justice or injustice, as, as you've talked about, um, is being handled. And it seems like it's relatively ignored or maybe advocates are placated by, like you said, perhaps the optics. Um, I'm wondering, maybe Nathan, do you have, or Brittany, or like, do you guys have maybe a, a thought, especially I know Brittany, you're, you work specifically 
um, and law as well. But do you have a thought as to why it's easy for these things to perhaps get pushed to the side or why it is easy to just placate people and, and, and go for the optics when you have um, communities like Miss Jackson's community where you're talking about their breathing in. And as, as an asthmatic, I just want to say, I totally get the concern of breathing. And as I was reading and watching all of these things, I'm thinking like, and this will probably take us into another place, but like when you were talking about COVID-19 and my concern uh, has always been my breathing. I already know that I'm, I'm severely asthmatic and that's a concern, but then you have these communities that apparently people are able to dump things. And I have lived very comfortably in my suburb all my life where I've never had that issue. Um, and so I'm thinking like, oh, this is also how environmental justice is as, as Misty said before we got on the podcast, everything just kind of flows downwind. Um, and so I'm, I'm wondering with something that's, it, it is very intricate. So I don't want to, I don't want to dismiss it as something very similar, but I'm wondering if maybe you could speak to why it's easy to get pushed to the side when it seems so obvious to the girl who just looked this up yesterday. Right. <laughs> so, so like, oh. why, why do you think that is? If you really look at, I, I'd say state and federal more so than local, but even so, lo even locally, if you look at the people that are donating and lobbying to campaigns, there is gas and oil, there is industry pushing left and right to be able to do whatever they want to do. We have an administration that's going with that anyway now. It's I don't know. It's just, it's, it's pure criminal. That's really what it boils down to. I think that we all are of the belief that anyone that's in a position of decision-making, anyone that is, they're supposed to be listening to their constituents. You are supposed to be carrying out the will of those that you represent. You are a representative. So We've been far gone from that. And the only reason that they're talking about it now is because people are talking about it. So nothing is going to become a platform for any politician until they feel like people care. And right now that's the thing. So they're going to talk the good talk now. But I think that we're all kind of in the same place where we're like, mm, I don't believe you. What are you thinking, Nathan? I see you shaking your head. No, yeah, I mean, I th think that's absolutely right. I um, I think when having these conversations, the dialogue, the dance between the the private and the public, which are both political, right? The personal is political, um, is complicated. But um, I mean, I think when we look deep enough and hard enough at any facet of the movement for justice, um, we are fundamentally dealing with a flaw in the structure of American society from the very beginning. Um, we're, we're dealing with a system that was set up in order to benefit and um, provide like wealth to a very small group of people. And democracy has been constantly sidelined in that pursuit. Um, and so we find ourselves now after a couple of hundred years, like, reaping the benefits um, and the burdens of, of that reality. And so, yeah, like money and power, which 
are not the same, but also are the same, play such an enormous role um, that in order for anything to significantly change, our personal lives also have to, like, we have to sacrifice a lot. Um, if, if we're going to fix these problems that we're seeing, like, it demands change on a level um, which Americans have heretofore seemed unwilling to uh, imagine. Uh, it changes the way that we structure our cities. It changes the way that we structure our personal lives and our local lives. And our, um, it's just a radical shift, and it's a lot easier to appease the people who are making a quick buck off of dumping toxic waste outside of black and brown communities than it is to change the way that we've structured our society. I would absolutely echo that saying, um, unfortunately, the, I think the most obvious reason as to how issues of environmental justice have implicated um, is unfortunately the, the systemic racism that our country's law has historically and to this day continues to be built upon. I mean, dating back to, you know, 19, early 1900s, uh, I, I remember in property class last year or whatever, we learned about a case, uh, Buchanan versus Worley. Um, quick summary of the facts is um, it was in Lewis, Louisville, Kentucky. A white man was selling a black man his home. And then during the purchase transaction, it came up that there's actually a local ordinance in Louisville at the time that a black person wasn't allowed to move into a majority white neighborhood. And this neighborhood there, the house was in, was like 80% white. So they are saying, the guy was like, I can't sell you this house because of this law. So they took it to court. Of course, you know, Kentucky courts were like, no, yep, that's the law. It went all the way to the Supreme Court. And it wasn't until, you know, the Supreme Court in like, like I said, 1917 or so said, um, yeah, no, that ordinance actually, that local ordinance does violate their 14th Amendment equal, like due protection clause because, due process clause, sorry, because everyone has the right and like people, of, I mean, I'm paraphrasing because it obviously wasn't said in, you know, 2020 words, but it's people of color have the same rights and civil liberties that white people do to access, you know, living in this neighborhood. Um, and so, I mean, it's local ordinances are doing it, unfortunately, state, federal, as you said, it's just, it's compounding. And it's because of the system um, and how it was built. Are you jumping in, Misty? Okay. I have a question and I'm sorry if... I don't act right. Did he buy the house? Did he still buy the house? Um, you know, I don't even I don't even know how it turned out. If he ended okay, up because I'm petty, I would have went all yeah. the way to the top and then no, I, I know. Totally, I'm totally <laughs> I don't want like, it. I wish that yeah, unfortunately that part wasn't in the case. So I'll have to look it up and and I'll I'll email Janelle so you can put it on your blog. Um You're dope, Brittany. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I but, too am petty, so I'm I'm down with it. I I, I would have wanted the same thing. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's, and then like, that isn't an uncommon type of case. I mean, you know, so from then to now, there's continuously, there's been laws at every level that are preventing systemic change, because as Nathan said earlier, it's made this way for a reason. And it's set up this way so that one group continues to benefit and the other continues, or the others all continue to bear the burden. Um, I think something interesting that I've learned more through church, really. I'm a member of UCC, United Church of Christ um, congregation. And so just kind of looking into environment, UCC, whatever came together. Um, I was really looking at, I'm not sure, Janelle, if you know 
because this is the history part that you might not know about yet. Um, have you heard of, um, he's known as like the father of EJ, of like doctors? Probably not. Probably not. Probably okay. haven't. So go for it. <laughs> Dr. Robert Bullard? Dr. Robert Bullard. Yes. Yeah, Everybody nods. So yeah. no. He's <laughs> awesome too. He is. Yeah. He's, um, as I said, often noted or considered the founder and the father of this whole environmental justice movement. Um, and he was close with um, actually a UCC reverend. And so that's how I, well, I knew Dr. Bullard from like school more like, but um, Dr. and Reverend Ben Ch Chavez, I'm pretty sure was his name. Um, and together, it was just so, so crazy to me. I never learned about this growing up. I'm from North Carolina. Um, and one of the biggest movements that I learned from Dr. Bullard um, that he cites as like the beginning of this environmental justice movement happened in Warren County, North Carolina, where um, they decided that they're just going to put this toxic waste dump into a county, Warren County, which was at the time, I mean, I think it is still predominantly black people were living there. Um, and so it started to kind of make a movement and it became such a thing that actually um, a lot of big speakers and big voices came to Warren County to protest. Um, and I think current events are kind of reconciling and reminding me of learning of this experience because this protest went on for several, like I think I don't know, 60 days or something, like a relatively long period of time. And it was like broadcasted nationally. By the end of the protests, you know, over 500 people had been arrested um, simply for like sitting in the streets and trying to refuse to let the dump trucks get to this site. So it's like this, like I said, Dr. Robert Bullard kind of cites that as like the beginning of this environmental justice where to your point of environmental racism versus environmental justice, I think environmental justice is the response to environmental racism where something needs to be fixed and like at that time, something that stemmed from those movements, you know, a ton of studies coming out, obviously. The UCC church specifically came out with a study, the toxic waste and race study, which um, looked at different siting places of where they're going to put toxic waste and concluded that across the board, race was the most significant factor in siting hazardous waste facilities. So it's like, this is something that's been proven. We've known this, you know, we knew it before the eighties, but in the eighties, it was literally proven with science if that's what you have to look to. And yet, here we are in 2020 and you know, it's what's different. Well, as it comes up, you see how flawed the system is. People are getting arrested and labeled as criminals because they are saying, no, don't do this. I don't want this pipeline. I don't want this batch plant. I don't want you to do this. This affects me this way. They become a criminal and then we look up later, we find out, oh, there's fiberglass flying in the air. There's this issue, our bad, and there's no recourse. They walk off into the sun with their money bags and Marsha can't breathe. You can't breathe. You're drinking lead water. Like, it's, it's, it's a whole problem. And it, it baffles me that you really have to talk to some people and almost drive the point home for them to get it. So I have to sometimes shake people's empathy into rage when I let them know because they're like, oh, the poor brown people, white folks get sick too. And just because we are disproportionately 
affected by it or we get a more concentrated amount of it, you still getting it too. But then again, we're going back to that system. Why are you okay with that? Because you probably have the resources to go to the doctor and handle it. An asthma attack might not kill you. You've got medical coverage. Well, so, so many things. I, I, don't, I don't even know. Like, there's so many roads to Nathan go. Nathan was about to tap in. Uh, oh, tap, he had something. tap in. Tap in. <laughs> that reminded me, what Misty was saying reminded me of like when uh, we're talking about police brutality and, and white folks are like, why don't you care about white people that are killed by the police? It's like, I do. Like, stop, stop killing the killing people like yeah like i don't want you dead either right. but no. the likelihood is they're gonna shoot me not you <laughs> yeah you don't help <laughs> me against. like yeah um i had a, i had a few thoughts one thing um i wanted to just note about uh what Brittany was saying um about the movement in warren county uh i had just pulled up just like to refresh my thoughts i had pulled up an article by james cone who's that black liberation theologian um called whose earth is it anyway and he talks about the movement in warren county um, and it's just like valuable, I think, to, to say out loud, though, it was like black church women who started that movement. Um, they laid their bodies down in front of like dump trucks and blocked the road. Um, black and, women for the win. Yes. <laughs> um, and then I was, I was just thinking, uh, sort of connecting a couple of dots. We're talking about earlier, we were talking about language and story. Um, and so we're talking sort of about how language changes and it evolves and the word justice sort of becomes part of a conversation that is focused on structural issues. Um, and I was thinking about uh, part of the barrier being also um, our own ability to understand what's happening as like a people, as a, a community. So we walk into a grocery store, right? And um, we hear all this talk about the free market, uh, but like, so we think free means a certain thing and we walk into the grocery store and we see all of this in like all of these things, but we don't know where they're, they're coming from. We don't know where the corn that's wrapped in plastic is coming from. Dole doesn't put on their like package of strawberries, like product of slave labor. Um, so like how much information do we have? We think uh, it's, we're sort of lied to all the time by everything. Um, and so- <laughs> yes it's so hard to get people to raise their voices against a thing that they don't know exists, which is part of why like activism is so important. Just like telling people like, Hey, this is more serious than you thought. Like, you know, those cantaloupes that you're buying at the grocery store, like those are, those are bad. Like don't buy Tyson chicken. Why not? Well, here's why. Um, but people don't like, we don't talk about that a whole lot. We're not seeing commercials. We're not seeing a narrative around that because it's tied to, it's tied to the system maintaining itself. Um, and so we really have to do a lot of like work on re-narrating the story as we understand it. We have to be able to walk, we have to get more people to be able to walk into a grocery store and say like, okay, like there's some stuff going on here that I'm not being told and I can move my life in the direction of justice um, and know that that movement is sort of ongoing and doesn't stop and then see people protesting and say like, okay, this is like part of that thing that I've heard about. Um, but until people start to reimagine that there's not going to be enough critical mass or critical yeast, critical leaven um, to bring about like the big changes that are needed, I think. But you're seeing people on a local level do it. You know, we got uh, community gardens like Pless yeah. Montgomery with the veggie, Oak Cliff Veggie Project. Um, I, 
he's hooked up with a whole bunch of them. They're giving free produce out to people. Like I, I see more people pushing the the urban farming narrative and and trying to grow that movement to kind of counter the fact that we we don't have options. We don't know what we're eating. And to in the defense of people, like you don't know it's bad until you know it's bad. And I feel like with the surge in activism that's going on, it's so dope to me because people are getting the information, you know, ripping the blinders off to say, oh, oh. And I feel like everything that's going on right now, it's like, it's not even an option, the red pill, blue pill, like everybody is gonna get this reality. And so for anybody paying attention um, and that's connected to anything, I feel like that, that spirit of activation is just happening in people. And um, I love it. I absolutely love it. It's interesting that you said a little bit about that, um, Nathan, because I was one of the videos with Van Jones. One of the things, there are two things. Um, I want to get to the second one a little bit later, but what you were talking about reminded me of something he was talking about in terms of choice. And I think it's both, it's a combination between you and what Misty was saying, where he was saying basically the choice is, is the thing that makes the difference. Um, and I think it's kind of, um, reflective of that whole pull yourself up by your bootstraps type mentality, um, where it indicates that you have options and choices um, that many people don't. But it sounds like it also ends up being cyclical uh, when you add in the layer of environmental injustice. Because again, if you have you, you know, if you're highly asthmatic, or if you have, you know, breathing respiration issues, or you're drinking lead, as the case may be, um, you're more prone to other health issues, which means it might be harder for you to get and maintain a job, because you have health issues, or because you don't have access to certain health care, um, which then means that the children that you're raising will also be stuck in the similar um, set of choices that you have, because it's all based on your ability to accumulate wealth and income and, and right. what. Um, and I, I think that was one of the things that he said and that that really kind of hit me is that we talk about choice. You have a choice when he's like, well, yeah, don't live in those neighborhoods. Great. Where would you like them to go? <laughs> like that really you? makes me mad when people say that. And I, I'm going to be real transparent. So I'm not okay. so far removed from being a mother with three, making $17.62 an hour, working for an insurance company that I couldn't afford my own insurance premium. Shout out to y'all, UHC. I'm sorry, that was so petty. But the point is like, it's not always an option. And when you, you look at where most of us work, I'm sorry, but most of the black people that I know that are not heavily degreed or, you know, they've got, it's customer service of some sort, mm -hmm. period. Like, so yeah, these companies are not paying jobs. Inflation is happening, but them wages are not keeping up. We already know this. So it's like, don't say it's a choice. Anybody that has the gumption and tenacity to get up and work 40 hours a week, you deserve to be able to pay your bills. Play black and period. Mm -hmm. So I, I uh, yeah, like, I don't, 
I don't feel like that's a worthy argument for somebody to say, you should pull yourself up by the bootstraps. I've got four jobs. I, I, I don't have the energy to pull up anybody's bootstraps. <laughs> I don't agree with that either, Misty, because uh, even Blue Star, when they interviewed the owner about that mess over here by me, well, he lives in North Dallas, Anna, Texas, making 500. Well, his home is like 500,000 plus, but you come in southern part of town and you uh, destroyed the way you did and polluted and you went back up to your little happy town and nothing happened. And that's another thing that bothered me that the city, you know, these elected officials, they don't hold them accountable for it. They come in the southern part and then they uh, just disrupt our lives like that and then you leave. And uh, another issue is just like in my area, um, I my home is zoned with agriculture. But right on the street is zoned with industrial IR. But the city of Dallas and any cities from now on, when these business come in there and they start wanting to uh, ask for a certificate of occupancy, they need to start investigating these locations. I think like uh, the planning that offered. They didn't investigate. They didn't know any homes was down here. You know, I lived here 25 years in a nice little rural area. Nobody knew us. We didn't have to, you know, be bothered with that issue. But now uh, we had to file because of zoning. We did. Uh, we are planning an amortization to get rezoning in our neighborhood for the 23 houses here. But I, I, I still have the problem that when these business coming over here, bringing that stuff over here, polluting it, they walk away, not a dime done to them. When this comes and they just started uh, yesterday, they were individual. They found them and then they, they jailed them. We've been fighting since uh, this company moved here January 2018 next door to me. It was less than 50 feet from my bedroom. I complained, complained and complained and called ever since. So now uh, the city came December 2018 and they filed a conjunction on them to take uh, to stop business. But they still have been taking them back and forth to court, back and forth to court. They're still here. Not one dime been paid. But how can uh, how can the city city do not charge an individual, do not charge a business, but they charge an individual? That doesn't make a lot of sense to me at all. That's just like uh, last night. And I, I know you've probably seen it, Janelle and uh, Misty, that uh, the day before yesterday, the big fire in Grand Prairie. Once again, close to the neighborhood close to the neighborhood again. And that fire again is causing people uh, hard for them to breathe. So that kind of stuff got to stop. I've, uh, all my elected officials in my district are black. Every last one of them. Not one have did supported or did anything. But Mr. Price did write a letter, but not one thing. So, you know, they're gonna, they, they're gonna have to start to be held accountable for their positions also. But for saying people move, why should I move when I've been here 25 years and that business only came in January 2018? So why? And that was what was on their mind when they first came. The very first day they came, they came to me and my neighbor wanted to buy. And the amount we told them, they didn't want to do that. So getting to steal, they decided they just pollute and try to run us out. But the city of Dallas is not protecting us. Seems like they're protecting the business. So to me, it sounds like it's all kind of issues somewhere behind there. Somebody's behind something going on. I don't know if it's dollar amount going on, but something is, and it's just, it's, it's just not right. And I think that's the thing that most people don't know, right? It's one of those things. I think one of the questions I had on here that I wanted to talk about was privilege. 
And a lot of the times that that buzzword seems to hit people the wrong way. I'm not privileged. I had X, Y, Z issues, so on and so forth. Right. Um, And so like one of the things I've started saying when I discuss privilege with people and it kind of it's it'll circle back. But one of the things that I talk about is your ability to not know something is the foundation of your privilege because you don't know it. Um, that means it's not affecting you. So we're not talking about your experience per se. We're talking about the fact that you don't know that these experiences exist. That's the foundation of your privilege. And and I want to talk a little bit about that and even kind of circling back to something that Nathan mentioned about like when you're shopping, right? Our lack of knowledge on this. And again, this is, again, I'm speaking, I am not at all talking about anybody but Janelle Nicole Gray. Um, which is like I, when I'm shopping, you know, I don't I don't know those things either. There are things that very specific things that I know. Like for example, I am familiar a little bit. Well, a lot of it. Again, if you know me, you know I'm familiar a lot of it with coffee. Um, but having lived in South America and and going to like coffee regions, I understand what I'm picking in those areas, and I understand when I'm supporting a certain type of coffee that I'm purchasing from Colombia. I know what I'm supporting, but that's a very small thing. And it's something that I took interest in. So how can we as individuals, when I just am going to the store and I just need spinach, I just need whatever, how how do we even find those things? Like when Nathan was saying, we don't know this is by slave labor. How do we, how, how do we get to know that? Because the average person a doesn't ask that question, right? Because it's, it's magically in the target. Um, so how do we even get to a point to where you guys are, to where you guys are, where you're aware of what questions to ask? And then when we do, what resources do we go to find that information? I'll tell you a secret, Janelle. I'm ready. I like be learning on the fly. (laughs) (laughs) I, I, I learn something new every day. And as much as I know, I walk around feeling like I don't know nothing because there's always so, so much, so, so much. Um, don't even try to learn everything. I tell people, you know, you can, you can try to, to see things, you know, from abroad or, you know, from a very broad view, but hooking up with people locally and finding out what the issues are or what's available for you to learn or how you can get hooked up with activism, co-ops, whatever. I say, look at it on a local level, because if you don't, it'll drive you nuts. And it's a rabbit hole. It's a rabbit hole. And you're going to find some new stuff on your way down. You're like, oh, God, what did I just hit? Some more mess. <laughs> Seriously. So, yeah, I, I, that's why I was, like, smiling when Nathan said what he did. Because, like, that intrigues me. I know I don't know what I'm picking up at the grocery store. And the thought of being able to go in my backyard, have me some downtime in the dirt, grow something that I know is going to give my children's body life, like, I'm with it. I think that's, I think that's the other thing. And, and so that actually goes back to the other thing I wanted to talk about um, that Van Jones mentioned at the beginning of his TED talk was not, not just the choices, but also we focus specifically on environment, like our conversations around environment are about when things go wrong. And his statement was what happens when it goes right. Um, and so I'm not sure if you were able to see the video, but essentially, and I, I'm not even going to pretend to know where this oil dump was. This was in like 2018. Um, but he was saying that there was an oil spill, 
Um, and that, you know, of course, we now know that like it's polluted the waters and this is awful and this is horrible. And now we're all talking about how we transport oil and, and that's just on the radar for, for this week, honestly. Let's, let's just be real. For this week until the next big thing happens. Um, and that's on the radar. But his statement was, we forget what happens when it goes right. So when it goes right and the oil actually makes it to that location, um, that location, the one that he was talking about specifically is called Cancer Alley, where people live, where it happens to be a low income uh, neighborhood, mostly black and brown people, um, where these people have are, are at a higher risk of cancer because it went right because the oil made it to the plant and then they did the thing with the, whatever the thing was. Listen, Janelle is not knowledgeable. But that's, a controlled, that, that's a controlled explosion. They know what they're releasing right there. It's a controlled explosion. But if a tanker splits in half in the middle of pristine blue waters, now people are mad. They don't care about the little poor people that are over here. They care about the fish and the blue water. Like that's something that outrages people. The optics outrage people instead of people being able to see, you know, from a, a functional standpoint. Yes. When I, the, the gas that I put in my car, the process that it takes to make it like, yeah, it's killing folks in Houston. They're sick. I, I drive into Houston. My eyes start itching. I make sure I have the nebulizer and a couple of puffers because everybody can't breathe. And yeah. so it's like if we're feeling that way when we just come in to the area, like what does that look like for the people that are exposed to that all the time? And most of the stuff that we're exposed to, you don't just get rid of the toxins. Oh, I'm going to do a detox and it's going to go away. Like, no, it accumulates in your body and it just stays there. So now you got... DNA and genetic dysfunction. You wonder why the kids can't sit still or why we're having behavioral issues. Well, because they've got crap in them. It's in the water. If it's in the air, it's in the water. It's in the ground. If you're growing anything, it's just, it's, you're getting hit from all sides. What do you do? You know, I talked myself into another thing. I wanted to talk about privilege and how privilege takes, I talked myself into that other question and bypassed my original question because I talk in circles. It's the thing I do. I but uh, what is, what is privilege? Like, wh what does that look like when we're talking about environmental justice? Because you guys, like I said, you guys have a lot of knowledge. What is that? What does privilege look like? If, if somebody's listening to this and they're thinking, yeah, like I've heard a little bit of all these things, what is, what would you describe as a privilege in this particular movement? I think you just said it, knowledge. Because if I know certain things, like if I walk into it, it was a decision that I made. If I decide that I'm going to get up and move to Highland Hills knowing that there is a Superfund site there and I know that there is ground contamination, that is a choice that I'm making because I know what's the exposure. I know what I'm walking into. But for people that don't know, like, that sucks. I don't take away anybody's power of choice. So I'm fully well aware that there are people that are okay to walk into things. So I think that is the first level of privilege is, is really actually knowing what you're dealing with and what's around you. That's the first layer. In our case, we wouldn't even know that um, these pollutants would pop up in this area. Um, you was asking a question earlier. The one thing that I would say that the city, when the city, uh, when we filed that lawsuit, 
they didn't really pay any attention to what we were saying, the complaints I was saying. What got them out here was enforcing when they first came out here and they saw that they was dumping some of those shingles and those pollutants into the creek. The creek feed into another trinity. So that was another thing that they really had the issue because they were polluting the, the, the creek. You know, this is the flood zone area. So their big issue, they were stopping them from polluting the creek. Didn't care about human, a human, uh, the feelings of what kind of affect us. It was mostly about the creek and the land. So that was their main focus now. But since, since they stopped that, there's nothing said at all. So um, the one privilege, I, you know what? I, Having I was, the, the ability to insulate. That's what you just said. They insulated themselves from issues. They left you with it, but it's not our issue. That's a privilege. Another layer. Exactly. Exactly. That's what I was, yeah, I would say, uh, I guess playing off Missy, well, both of your points, that like the access to that education is the privilege and like the idea, like the actual ability to, I don't know, have a smartphone and look something up, um, mm-hmm. go to a class where you actually are taught something on this, you know, so that access is a privilege, but I think conversely, ignorance is a huge privilege because I think, I mean, Janelle, you said it perfectly that there's so many people out here that just think like, oh, you know, the only thing climate change is doing is it's a few degrees hotter, blah, blah, blah. Like, but it's always hot. You know, like the idea that, they're that they can be that ignorant on thinking climate change is such a small issue when really it's so multifaceted. It's affecting each and every one of us right. in every aspect of our lives. But there's some people that just live in communities where they don't face the more immediate effects. So they and never, having the ability to adjust. Exactly, that, yeah. yeah. You never have to know, or they never feel, I guess, driven to reach out and, and learn about it, an issue that doesn't directly affect them. So I think that ignorance is a huge privilege because even, like, I mean, Misty, to your point of having to, like, drive it in people's heads, like, people that don't deal with this every day are just like, oh, wow, that sucks. Like, you want to go get coffee? Like, they just move on because they can. And I think that in it of itself is the biggest privilege people can yield is that ability to walk away at the end of the day and think and compartmentalize environmental issues as, you know, maybe a research topic or something to discuss over an academic dinner or whatever, but then you go home and never think about it. And it's like, you know, the majority of people don't have that. They have to go home and deal with air pollutants, water pollutants, gas leaks, these types of issues that are hitting everyday Americans, just maybe not the politicians that are making our laws because they, of course, are the people that have that ability to insulate themselves. And that's the funny thing. We are governed by a demographic of people that don't have any concept of, I can't go to the doctor I'm not going to eat dinner to make it stretch for the kids. Like they don't have any concept of what's so normal to us. And we see that in the policies that come down. When we look at the environmental protections that they're rolling back, it's just like, oh my God, why don't you just set everybody on fire? Just, just do that. (laughs) And they think that they're like, go ahead because I can afford, you know, fireproof clothing and a fire extinguisher. Right. But it also doesn't matter because you're essential. 
Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. You're essential. It's okay. Yep. Mm. With environmental issues, you have you you have to purchase a lot of medicine. Mm. Some that you would ever think about. Uh Brittany, you mentioned Dr. Bullard, Dr. Um Misty and I's uh chairperson about Dr. Bullard here in October. And he came out here also, but that was one thing that he did tell me to continue writing, continue calling, do not let up on them. You know, because once your voice goes quiet, they think they're okay with that. But keep on fighting and, and keep speaking up until they hear you, until it's, it's, it's moved. You know, and that's what we continue doing constantly. Yeah. Um, he say, yeah, he did say, you have a right to live clean air just like everybody else. And that's true. We do. I have a 12-year-old granddaughter, and now she has to stay in the house all the time. My neighbors have three grandchildren. So they have to stay in the house all the time. So who want to live like that? Um, we deserve, everybody else deserves, just like those people in that fire. Can you imagine that smoke, that plastic burning like that? That's another thing. That plastic burning constantly over there, and they can't even live their healthy lives over there because of that. They should never, they should have never been allowed to put a plant next to a neighborhood. And that, that has to stop. That's, and I think that's the other thing that, you know, looking back, um, I've said this so many times, but I, my great love is calling a thing a thing because once you name it, it, it like, then you really start to understand it and its impact. And, and it's one of those things that like, you see movies like Aaron Brockovich and like now as I'm reading them, I'm like, oh, that's, oh, that's what that, that was environment. Oh, okay, cool, 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 cool. Like, or Flint, yeah. and like, you know, these things that, that, that pop up, these, major things, but then they go away. And I think that's the other thing is we're looking at them as isolated things. We, we talk about Flint all the time, but when, for example, when, when daddy, shout out Ed Gray, um, when daddy um, told me to talk to, to Miss Jackson, um, he was like, yeah, Shingle Mountain. I was like, what the heck is Shingle Mountain? I don't know what Shingle, like I live in Dallas, Fort Worth. Like I live in DFW. I have no clue what that is, but I know what Flint is. You know what I mean? I know what these other things are. And so I think the other thing is just opening your eyes to the fact that it exists like daily in neighborhoods that you probably, you know, cross over a, a, a um, you know, a line or a district or something that you just, you just don't know because you just drive through it. And it's so easy to just point to these very specific places that have made it really, really big on the news, but next door, there's, there's this, the same types of things. And you have, like you said, the food deserts and you have these, these legal dumping places. And then one of the other things, and this was me going again with that rabbit hole that you mentioned, <clears throat> I started asking myself a whole bunch of other questions and I'm thinking like, okay, we're talking about even from an environmentalist standpoint, how global warming is affecting things. That's also going to maybe lead to immigration issues if you have these island communities that go completely underwater. And then we're going to have this conversation all over again because we have an entire island of people who have nowhere to go. And then where will you put them? Right. Um, and I think as I was reading that, like I said, I, I'm quick to tell you that, you know, like this, this little 10 minute rabbit hole is not at all making me a professional anything, but it is very clear how all of these things affect, it's, it's affecting, like we've already mentioned, COVID, with COVID cases and, and asthma and breathing and all of these other things. You've also now got these kids that are now staying home. And what does that mean now that they're at home all the time, 
right and their house may be right next to a plant that's you know has these dumping that now they're having to learn under these conditions as well like this affects everybody daily but we just don't know um we just don't know and i think the other thing like i said before is it comes down to i don't know what questions to ask if I hadn't just stumbled upon something. I think he posts, my dad posts everything all the time. Like he's way better at Facebook than I am. But um, <laughs> he, like, yes, he, he, they listen, my parents are way better at social media than they I am. They're senior citizens. They, they make it happen. <laughs> I, I, they are way better at, 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 yeah, at social media than I could ever hope to be. I learned so much. Um, but, but he had posted something and I was like, you know, that is something we should put on our radar. That's something we should put on our radar for a discussion. And just in this week alone, I'm just sitting here and my mind is blown knowing all of these things. Like, you know it on a very, if you're involved with any social justice movements, you can see a little bit how it affects certain people. But it's the fact that it legitimate, like the fact that I could just walk out of my house, drive to a Starbucks, you know, and get back within 10, 15 minutes to make sure I was here for this podcast is also indication of like my ability to drive to Starbucks, which is right next in between Target and Walmart. And if I needed to get something really quickly to eat and it didn't have to be fried, I could do that. Like that wasn't an issue for me. Um, and that is really the foundation of what we're talking about is that ability to healthily move about even even in a pandemic still relatively healthily move about the world um in a way that a lot of people cannot um i so i kind of want to talk a little bit about the connection with other social justice movements and i think um Brittany and Nathan, at the beginning when you were introducing yourself you guys talked a, a lot about intersectionality and like how environmental justice is playing a part in some of the work that you're doing. Can you talk a little bit more about that intersectionality and like a, a little bit more about like the, the connection between some of the other movements that you're working with? Yeah, sure. Do you want, do you want to go first, Brittany? Go ahead. Rock, paper, okay. scissors. <laughs> um, yeah, I think, um, so my own history is that I, um, I spent two years in Atlanta with uh, an intentional community um, that was doing work at the uh, uh, sort of like the Catholic worker movement has two sort of aims. They do works of mercy and works, works of justice. So we were doing like hospitality for uh, people who were experiencing houselessness um, and people who were sort of in difficult life circumstances. Um, and we were trying to live like across racial divides. So we were doing some like dismantling of white supremacy and we were living as a community doing like soup kitchens and showers and then also agitating for structural changes that would mean that there weren't houseless people in a city with like tons of empty homes. Um, and while I was there, I felt like, I knew it wasn't gonna be forever. Um, and it was two years was my commitment. And I had some friends who were doing some work in more like, ecological areas and so I became like really interested in that having those conversations and um, encountered like a little bit of resistance like that was a betrayal like if I moved on and did other things like it meant that I didn't care about um, yeah like poor people anymore yeah, uh, hard to hold two things at the same time yeah no <laughs> um, but I began to like really think about how those things were related and 
and I think the like the the way that I frame this in my head, and I um I don't really like in my head the word environmental or environment like doesn't occur very much anymore. Um, it's kind of a huge word that means a lot of things to a lot of people and can be very unwieldy, like the environment. Um, uh, and everyone has like their own environment. So I like to think about like particular places. So like I'm in the Little Red River watershed here in central Arkansas and it dumps into the White River and that goes into the Mississippi. And so like I can place myself. But I think a lot about ecology, um, which is, I've heard somebody refer to it once as the science of relationships, which I really like. Um, and so in my, in my own imagination, I think about intersectionality as the ecology of social movements, that like the reality is that all things are always related to one another, whether or not we know how Dang. they affect one another. Um, and I really like uh, that framing. I really like thinking about intersectionality as ecology. Um, because I think it makes it a lot clearer when you start to think about ecology and sort of environmental justice issues and how the health of the human community plays into the health of the non-human community. And we're talking about the water and the soil and how that translates back into like our bodily health and our communal health. Um, I think it makes it a lot easier to image and think about the way that the health of women um, or non-binary folks, um, queer folks, affects the ability of like men to live well um, and affects the ability of like all of those things sort of necessarily touch each other because how could they not? Um, like uh, our world is held together by unseen forces underneath the soil um, that connect everything that share resources. And I know that's been true historically through movements that like intersectionality was originally like the, the struggle for against racism and the struggle for um, women's rights, like coming together and being like, these are the same, like these are the same thing in a lot of ways. We got to do it together or it's going to fall apart. Um, and so you can't just in the same way, you just can't like, you can't take care of a tree on your own property and then dump a bunch of poison onto the lawn. Like that, that doesn't make any sense. Um, you're going to like, you're going to see those effects. So that's like sort of it, in my head, what happens when I think about how all these things are connected. And then the heavens open and harps played because that, yes, <laughs> I fully agree with all of that. Ah, yes. Brittany, you were going to say something, I think. You, you guys were going to arm wrestle a rock, paper, scissor it out. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, yeah, so I think my story is a little different, but ultimately the same of highlighting the importance of intersectionality. Um, growing up in the South as a gay kid wasn't fun, um, especially going to a far-right religious high school, um, which thankfully my parents were not. It was just the one in the area that we could afford. Um, and so that was not super fun, like I said. So growing up from a very young age, I could recognize in, in my small area, like things were wrong and needed to be changed. So being an idealistic middle schooler, I realized I had to be the president and that was the only thing that could happen. And then going into high school, I quickly realized that would do nothing. And that, you know, politicians may be <laughs> more figureheads than actual uh, movement and change makers. So I decided if it's the law that screws people, I should learn it so I can fix it. Um, never in my life was I thinking anything environmental um, until a mixture of college, where I went to a small all women's college that was a majority minority campus. So I was exposed to so many new 
people, perspectives, um, and realities that I had been ignorant of in the past. Taking that to law school, I knew the only thing I wanted to do was help people. And that's been such a broad path. It didn't lead me anywhere because I was like, well, I can help people in a billion ways. Ultimately, I found all roads have been leaving, leading to environmental issues because whether, you know, you pick a group of people that you want to help, you know, low income, queer people, people of color, all of them are adversely affected. And I mean, Missy, you've been saying it from the beginning, very beginning. Of course, some people are disproportionately affected, all the people I've been mentioning. Um, but then even if you can't, for some reason, reach out to a person with all of those people groups, you can say, look, even if you don't care about my humanity, you don't care about the humanity of the people on this podcast, ultimately you care about yourself, don't you? And if we keep living like we are right now, climate experts are estimating, you know, if we don't make any change in 10 years, there's going to be, I mean, there's already damage that can't be reversed, but in 10 years, there's going to be irreversible damage that is going to be catastrophically harmful, you know? So ultimately everyone's livelihood depends on whether or not we have a livable climate and a livable planet. So I think that's, to answer your question, I think environmental issues is the biggest intersectional issue of all because Literally, you name a people group, you name, not even just people, you name an animal group, you name a food, anything, and ultimately, you're touched by this issue. I want to shift a little bit because we've kind of skirted around it, Um, but I like, again, naming things and calling things things. So there's one thing that we've kind of talked about um, with respect to this, and Nathan, you said it like at the very top of the podcast, or you didn't say it, but like... It was there. I heard it. I don't remember what you said, but I heard it Um, where you were. um, And and I know Missy and I have talked about this offline, but when it comes to environmental issues, it is from just just from the people that were like the list of names that I was getting. It is largely white and it is largely female. Um, And I wonder if maybe you can speak a little bit to that specifically since everything that we've talked about has been black and brown communities being affected the most black and brown and lower income communities being affected the most um and i think it has to do with something that you later said um later slash earlier said nathan where you were talking about the narrative shifts um and i i'm i'm not sure so maybe draw some lines for me why why do you think that is because i i make it a point to work really hard to make sure that i have different voices when i have conversations like this um but it was also very it it was also very difficult to find a balance of black brown female male white and like it was it was a different it, it was definitely more difficult to find like a, a good mix of people. So maybe speak a little bit to that. Why is it that we see mostly white or female in in the forefront of, of this? Uh, I, I guess I can kind of expound on what we already talked about, Janelle. Mm-hmm. So generally speaking, my personal story, I, I'm not an activist. I didn't go to college to do this. I didn't. I fell into this because I have two asthmatic kids and a family member of mine was an organizer um, and she was doing- Go ahead, shout her out. 
Hey, Sherelle. Hey. Sherelle Blazer or Yinka, Ebe Yinka. <laughs> uh, so she was doing this work. She was doing um, public health work. She was starting her own nonprofit, Breath is Life. And um, I was just trying to support her. I really didn't even firmly grasp what she was doing. But little by little, she would ask me to, you know, can you do this? Can I use this? Can you help? Can you volunteer? And little by little, I started learning. And then I got to that, oh, hell no moment. Like, <laughs> y'all don't get to, like, profit off killing my children. Because at that point, my son had already had pneumonia twice. Um, with my 14-year-old, we used to be at the hospital at least once a month doing hour-long treatment, prednisone. She's roid raging, like it's much. And then you're worried about losing your job. So all of these things coupled with what I was learning, I'm like, this shit affects me. I'm, so, I'm sorry, y'all. This affects me. No, <laughs> that that was, that was my that genuine reaction. <laughs> <laughs> and so I was kind of big mad and it just kind of led down a rabbit hole and here I am today. Um, nobody is active on anything until they see how it tangibly affects their life and in a way that they care about. You know, if it's like, oh, I'm just losing a couple of pennies off the dollar, eh, it's not a big deal right now. But when you see that it's an issue and anybody that knows me knows I love my kids. So we have a problem once I realize there's a problem for them. And so knowing that they weren't genetically flawed. It wasn't because my grandmother had asthma and I had a touch of asthma that they had it. They're allergic to the crap that's being in the air. And so um, that's what activated me. But even in the work, most of the people that I see are women because it's that mama bear, like I want to protect my children. Um, and when you're looking at environmental things and who's going to exude or show impacts it's your kid as you see them developing that's the thing and for any mother that's looked at their child and seen either a health or a developmental delay anything it stops you and so I think that's why you see more women as far as just more white people or there being an overwhelming number of white people at the table when I, I didn't even know who Sierra Club was before Sherelle I thought it was tree huggers. It's white folks. They they like to save trees. That's that's what they do. And traditionally, that is the lens that environmentalism was looked through was conservation. Yeah. How many black folks you know from Oak Cliff are trying to go uh hiking in the Rockies? Nah, 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 nah. I don't know what's out there. That's that's not my place. And so that that narrative was painted. That's not for us. It is for us. Maybe not in that way. But now people are starting to see, you know, even just on a functional level, how I need to worry about what is around me. If there are no trees, then we're getting, we, we don't have a buffer from, as Marcia said, the batch plant or the asphalt plant or the, the landfill. This tree buffer is a help. That's a real thing. That narrative shift, I think, is bringing more brown people uh, to the forefront. Um, and just to the table, um, I will say politically, huh, I'm speaking from an activism standpoint. I don't know, Brittany or Nathan, if y'all, y'all would have a different perspective, but yeah. I know that there's this, 
there's this thing that happens. I've been thinking, I've been thinking about this, this question a good bit um, for a while now. There's sort of an, uh, a complicated reality, which is that there's a real need to name when something is very white and unreflective about that reality. And there's also a way of telling that story that somehow that sort of erases the actual foundations of a movement. Um, and so it's, I think a thing happens where white people just get to talk more um, because we live in a really white supremacist state and um, white folks feel comfortable taking up all the space and they feel comfortable writing a whole bunch of books and they've been told all of their ideas like as a white man like my whole life people are like your ideas are great even if I don't have ideas um, and uh, and that shouts down and overshadows all of the other work that's done by like those black church women right in North Carolina who are just like getting the job done they're like we're gonna sit down in front of these dump trucks and this is like this is the work um, and they're not like going to school and writing papers on how um, you can change the name of the work if you just read enough continental philosophy. Uh, and so, yeah, I don't know quite what to do, uh, quite what to do with that reality other than to hold up that I think um, white folks just sort of need to sometimes acknowledge that they like often acknowledge they didn't start this work most of the time great work and great movements were started by people who were directly affected by those things. Um, because at that point, you're not doing it because it's cool. Like you have to. Right. Yeah. It's a privilege to do it for fun. Yeah. Yeah. And it's even a privilege to do it out of a sense of responsibility for other people. Um, and so while I don't, while I don't want to downplay like the, the whiteness of environmentalism historically and the very real things that are happening there. I also want to like in my own work and in my own life and speaking, want to make sure that I lift up the fact that this has been done by people of color um, for a long time. And, and that's a real part of the struggle also. And I, I meant to throw the last point. One of the other reasons, most of the time when you look at green movements, it is older white people. So not only you know, is there probably the knowledge, but you have the time. You have the time to, to go to all the city hall meetings and, you know, plant flowers and bird watch. Like, you have that time. I think you've actually hit on a, a question and something that you said, Misty, when I, I was gonna ask, what's the common misconception? And I think you actually touched on that, but I wanna give other people an opportunity to speak, um, but, my question is, what do you think is the common misconception when talking about environmental justice? And I think one of the things that you said, Missy, was like this, it's it's a tree hugger type of, of uh, thing. It's almost, and, and it's it's an older type of movement. So it's kind of got this hippie vibe to it, um, this hippie nature walking type vibe. And as the person who doesn't like to sweat, also, I don't like to garden because admittedly i don't want to get my nails dirty but like still um that like those i think those things are i do like nature i just don't want to be physically in never mind this is another i, respect it. I, understand. <laughs> I appreciate all the work that you're doing so that i could sit comfortably in nature i just don't want to dig into the natures um but no um but still like i think um you're talking about just the the perception of it 
And I think it does have, like you said, that tree hugger type of thing. I absolutely care about the environment and I care about global warming, but admittedly that is kind of the way that it's it's presented is like we're gonna stand in front of you know these bulldozers and keep them from knocking down trees and that's essentially what environmentalist is is uh an environmental activist's job essentially is um and so i think a this conversation lets you know that that is just like one part of this very large movement that is one that's kind of like one day on the job that's not like the job itself um but i want to give other people an opportunity to speak what do you think is another misconception or do you think that that's the main misconception about environmental justice when you hear it as a buzzword like i said earlier there are people are uneducated and when you hear about environmental like mr c they're really thinking about more of uh, trees or more of the park or the uh, just the scenery. They're not thinking about how it's harming anybody's health or anything like that. Uh, I'm constantly, whenever I say something about Shingle Mountain, I have to explain it. And that's the first thing they were telling me. Oh, environment, I thought it had something to do with just the ground or the trees or nature or something like that. You know, and I have, I have to tell them all the time, go look it up. Google Shingle Mountain and you look up and uh, you can understand anything about an environmental. That's the same thing as um, just, it's not close to us, but I was going to tell you, Brittany, when you finish that law degree, come on down and help uh, help our neighboring neighbors. Because, uh, <laughs> even though I have a uh, lawsuit file, but we still got neighboring neighbors that really have an issue, a uh, sand branch that don't have running water. You know, people don't understand the issue on that either. Miss Marsha, I said, just as a side note to that, Hearing you say that, it almost brings me to tears because I, I will say like I, you know, I went, I grew up uh, going to church at St. Luke Community United Methodist Church. Um, I was legitimately born into that church. Like I think my mom was there when she was 15. Um, so I grew up in that church and that was one of the things I very vividly recall doing as a young person, like 13, 14, is going to these homes in Sand Branch and giving them water. And the fact that I am now, first of all, 38, that, that just, I don't know how we got here. I don't know how we made the left to almost 40s. But now that I'm, I'm 38, and I'm like, I remember doing this when I was 13. And I'm 38. And these people still don't have, they have had children, they have had grandchildren, they have, you know, like they have had a full communities that have functioned this long down the street and around the corner from me without having running water. But you know, the thing about it, what made me so darn mad, you know, the water treatment is right down the street. So they still can't you can walk along the gate down there. Yeah. Yeah. You know. The water treatment facility. So that's a, that's another, that's another um, hazard injustice. I think it's terrible. Who, who would even be down there staying? You know, they could, they could do something. It so, makes you kind of cynical a little bit. It's very hard to listen. I try, I try to find hope wherever I can. These conversations are like my bits of hope because I'm like, well, maybe, maybe somebody's going to learn something and it's going to make them go out and do a thing. Like, I don't know what the thing is, but here's hoping, right? Like, this is my little bit of hope because it, it is very hard to not be cynical. Um, but I think, Another thing is, and, and I saw this on a, a documentary 
a couple of months ago um, during the pandemic when you have nothing else to do but endlessly watch um, Netflix or what have you, I saw a documentary on recycling, which totally blew my mind. And that recycling is really not as helpful as we think it is. Like, we're all like, yay, recycling. This is a one. I put it in the blue bin and yay for the blue bin. And I did my job. Um, and I think that right now there are a lot of people who don't understand. Like, it, it, speaking of cynicism, it made me super cynical. Like, even to the point of like two days ago we have like a little thing in our house where we put it before we take it out to the bin we have like a little pile of recyclables and i i looked at him i was like man it's performative that makes people feel good about themselves i recycled not oh my god i got glass bottles and i reuse them and i tote them to the store and bring them back no i'm gonna keep buying these plastic bottles but i'm gonna recycle them it doesn't force you to change what you're doing it doesn't think, force you to change how you're living. I think I want to talk a little bit, a, a little bit, and that's that. That is a thing. It doesn't force. Again, I think that le- leads to a privilege too. Like when you're, st- when you can know something and not have to be forced to 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 do anything about it. Too like like I know that, but like I can do something cute and it makes it feel like I, I did a thing. Um, I think. Th- I I do genuinely believe that people would say, well, I recycle and that's my part that I'm playing. And, and I see you, I see you like shaking your head. Like, that's cute. Like, (laughs) like, oh, aren't you precious? Um, So like maybe speak to, to those of us who thought like we were doing a thing when we were recycling. And I, I, I just want to throw out there like this particular documentary, I might link that. I'm going to write that down to link that the name of the documentary. Um, But it, it did kind of come off of, um, um, it, it, it was very problematic now that I think about it, um, where they used, I can't remember the man's name, but the white man who claimed to be of indigenous heritage and he's the crying Indian man. And it was this big commercial in the eighties. And that's when it became, I will send it to you all. Cause y'all are looking at me yeah, like, I don't want no idea what I'm talking about. But yeah. I, I do very, very vividly remember the crying Indian man. Like I remember that it's this man who's walking around and people are throwing things out the window and he's sad for the earth, which is a whole other problematic issue because it's dealing with indigeneity and blah, 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 blah. Anyway. Um, but that particular documentary did talk about how you think you're doing the right thing. And it was really this movement created by the people who created the problem so that you feel like you're, you're part of the solution. Um, and so I wonder if you might talk a little bit more about that because you guys are actively on the ground and working in these types of areas, explain maybe a, why recycling isn't big enough. Um, and then B what can we do in in place of recycling or in addition to recycling? I'm not saying stop recycling, but like in addition to that will maybe make a bigger impact. Um, you just keep wanting to jump down this rabbit hole. Jamel. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It's, it's because of the three YouTube videos that I watched. They took me everywhere. <laughs> um, I think to intro into that, the um, question of like the biggest misconception or whatever is like, I think very heavily relates to your question. Um, The biggest misconception in in my eyes, um, adding one that like, oh, it's only a white person issue. But two is that it's not an important issue. Like if you look at where we learn from issues, it's who's paying to have you know, the media show things, who's buying these ads out and who's paying to run these essentially 
smear campaigns against environmental movements. Like you've seen environmentalists be labeled as degrading things like, oh, they're, you know, just a tree hugger, just a hippie, so that we've fundamentally come to just look down on the idea of caring for the environment. And it's something that like when you hear somebody speak up and be like, oh, well, that maybe we shouldn't do that because, you know, it's going to it could potentially, you know, endanger an entire species. They're like, oh, you know, there's the liberal in the room or some kind of like somehow this has become an insult. Um, So I think that ultimately is how we have like shaped um, or I guess how we present the idea of environmentalism to Americans, at least I can only speak for our country. Um, that's how we present it to it. So nobody is just naturally inclined to be like, oh, I want to learn about that because you learn about it as if it's a, you know, worthless thing to even get involved with. So then, you know, fast forward a few years, here we are where it's like maybe trendy right now to be quote unquote sustainable, which is a word that's never defined. So different companies have a different level of sustainability because they all define it as how they want it. Like, oh, we're sustainable because we didn't use one, like we use one less plastic bag than we usually do. So now we are creating an entirely huge impact where it's like nobody takes the time to Google or whatever, research what makes you sustainable. We just hear it and we're like, I believe that, you know? Yeah, exactly. It's like, wow, I can feel good about wearing this because it's whatever, like, which would get us into the fast fashion conversation, which is a whole different podcast so See? I won't even, that's too many rabbit holes I know so <laughs> but back to recycling I think I think Missy you nailed it it's that it's an action that doesn't really require much change and I also think adding to like the smear idea of it it's the people that are creating the biggest problem the industries the companies corporation are turning the issue around and saying all of you individuals are the reason that you, you are the sum of the problem. Yeah, you're it's the not reason. the system. It's not the way exactly. we're moving. Exactly. Broadly. Collectively, exactly. all of you creating climate change. So if you guys could just work together and change this little thing, then we're going to solve it. When in reality, first of all, recycling makes such a such a such a such a little actual impact. Sorry, but where do you think we're taking that after you recycle it? We're not even, most places don't even recycle anymore because China stopped buying it. They from. stopped taking it. They got yeah. too much. They throw it away anyway. So exactly. it's, just, it's not helping a problem. It's in, it's contributing to the environmental yeah. justices that now China has to live with all of our crap. So is another podcast. Because exactly. Yeah. So that's, <laughs> how, that's absolutely how I got to that. Like, this is going to affect immigration because I believe yeah. it could exact, you're, you actually, I'm going to link the documentary, but Brittany just said everything that the documentary <laughs> said. This is actually how I just learned all. But I, that is essentially what you're saying is, is like these, these communities used to buy it. And now there's, I, I can't remember um, the, the island or the community, but it's in China. It's an island somewhere. Um, and, and they used to dump there. And now like they have nowhere to live. Like the community that actually inhabited this island now has nowhere to live. Right. Um, Because we have, yeah. Yeah. And so, and so now you've got this thing that you, you think you're doing a thing by recycling, but now the, a, the plant, even the things that you think you're recycling, because the little card says they recycle ones and twos, half of the things that get to the plant 
don't actually get recycled. They actually get thrown away. And then of the things that do get recycled are purchased by this other country. And then when that other country has either died because of all of the environmental issues that are very similar like to the ones that Ms. Ms. Marshall was talking about in, in the Dallas community. They're now happening to full islands of people. So now they're saying, you know what? We don't wanna buy your stuff anymore. So now you think you've done a thing, but this whole time it's yeah. sitting likely in some legal dump site in the US anyway, that you don't know about because there's or a whole- Or the trash island that's floating through the yes. ocean. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. cool too. It's because ultimately like these, the, the biggest contributors understand it's so easy to take your attention when they've already for so many years been putting out like, you know, disinformation campaigns saying like, it's not as bad as they're saying it is. And all you really need to do is X, Y, and Z. And so then everyone just hears that and you're like, wow, that's it. Okay. And you know, they don't never think, they never think about it again. Where these corporations know exactly what they're doing. You know, they're not, it's not an accident that these CEOs live so far removed from the areas that they're doing business in because yeah. they know that. And that goes back to your, one of your very first questions of the benefit versus burden. They reap all of the benefits of all of the yeah. investments into these communities. They get to take it and leave. And all the people in those actual communities get none of that benefit. They don't get the profit that comes ultimately from their land they only are stuck with the machines and the output of these in this industrialization that's ruining communities. Sorry, I'll get off my. They so, don't even get the benefit of a livable wage. No, yeah, <laughs> we get ten seventy five an hour, and we're going to tear the planet up. Have a healthy amount of cynicism. Um, activists can sometimes come across as kind of dour and like nothing's good enough. And I mean, I think the reality is that. Nothing's good enough, okay? Like, um, these companies aren't going to give us the solution. Like, we have to, even if we feel okay about taking some of these, like, consumer steps, we have to just settle ourselves into the reality that they're, they're not going to let us change that by making profit off of it. Um, and a healthy level of cynicism when companies come out with, like, green solutions to these problems is good. Um, they're still going to be making money off of it. And so just because like a company decides to package everything in the color green, like maybe that doesn't actually affect. Marketing studies show. <laughs> so like there'll be a trash island, but it'll be like a green trash island. Yeah. It'll look like grass. And <laughs> I, I want to talk a little bit, there are two things actually, let's go here first. Um, since we're talking about corporations um, right now, um, with Black Lives Matter and um, George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and all of the things um, that are going on right now, you see this very big interest in corporations on um, equity, equality, diversity, the buzzwords of diversity and inclusivity and all that other stuff. Um, but if, if there is somebody who is a part of a, a decision-making part of, of, of a corporation, um, how do you think they could be of help in this particular area? And it sounds like to me, just based on, um, I, I guess, Brittany and, and Nathan, when you guys tag teamed about your idea of everything being related, it sounds to me that this would be a great place for corporations to start in order to 
kind of attack that that need for equity, even along the lines of, of racial um, equity and, and like, you know, class income, what have you. Um, but how can they be a part of that? Especially, especially as we have just mentioned that corporations often are um, a part of the problem. Um, if somebody is listening to this podcast and they run a corporation, what, what thing would you suggest that they could do? Great. Nothing. Cool. 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 No, I'm kidding. <laughs> yeah. You stumped the whole room with that one. Cause honestly, I mean, when you think of business, the, the, anybody in business is in business to make money. Right. Yeah. So if there is a profit margin to be made and I'm looking for that dollar, I mean, I just think that there's a certain amount of shrewd that has to be present for you to truly just attack the market and sell to really just, and so, I don't know. I feel like it would be great if there was a corporation with that type of conscience. That would be super dope. But I feel like it's, it is it is kind of more on us to force their hand. You can't sell me what I'm not willing to take. Um, so, I don't know. I just, maybe that is that cynicism in me, you know, not really having faith. And I'm sure that there are some sustainably, yeah, I'm going to use the buzzword, the sustainably run businesses. Uh, I haven't seen them. I will hold on to hope. It would be very amazing if that did happen. I'd like to speak it into existence. The conversations are steady uh, being discussed uh, by, uh, since the BLM movement mm-hmm. and trying to increase more diversity. But you know, I was just on a... Um, a call last week where we were talking about it, even at uh, my corporation, about trying to change it and increase it. But you know, it's so easy for them to say that we're going to do this and do that. But how is it going to be held up to it? You know, the conversations. So, and what informs uh, the process? <laughs> yeah. You, you see, some of them were saying how they increased in the neighborhood, they're going to increase more jobs and donate so much going to take more than just donation you know to even change this. why are we donating exactly. we pay taxes we pay taxes <laughs> we're they struggling enough like why are we paying that price they claim donating to a blm movement whatever but the, the same thing is just like when blue star first moved over here first thing they said well we're going to make sure that we're going to be good neighbors to you guys that was just a fail that was just a till, just walked in. They won't take the property. They disrupted the fence, pulled up the fence line and the whole life and just walked away. So, you know, uh, it's so easy to put on paper when a movement is going on to say they're going to do this and that. But the policy that you're implementing, just make sure that you continue following that policy from there to, to uh, continuously. Even a divide in the group. You know, whether it's um, racial discrimination, to try to improve that, there's so many of them that still have it. We still have a racial discrimination problem. We still have those issues within the company. You know, and um, just to sit there and look and turn your back to it, that's, it's hard. It's hard to see these things happening in this company. And uh, it's nothing that's really doing about it. Corporate leaders should, at the very minimum, be willing to risk, not even risk, be willing to divest themselves of their wealth. 
um, and their corp their corporate wealth, and not just individual private wealth, but the wealth of the company. In order for any like sizable corporation to do any significant good, it will mean that they will have to pour money into ensuring that their practices are actually not only sustainable but regenerative, um, with like a sort of robust understanding of what that means to pay their employees well, um, and to ensure that like the communities in which they are setting up shop are being taken care of um, and their labor is just not being outsourced. Um, all of which means that they lose, they lose money probably because they have to start paying a lot more money and there are overheads that they have ignored and externalities that they've ignored. Um, I think, yeah, I mean, I, I'm also pretty cynical. My initial response was sell everything you have and give it to the poor. That's, um, that's what you do. Um, Nathan 2020. He said, that's bare minimum. Give away everything you have. That is. That's the floor. With a straight face. I I like this man. Um, So, I I mean, I think that's just like, realistically, they have to be willing to sacrifice a lot of their wealth um, Mm -hmm. and a lot of the size and the scale of what they're doing. I remember my other thought also. Which had to do with the question of what we can do and also the biggest misconception about environmental justice. So I don't know that this is necessarily a misconception, but it is, it's sort of adjacent to that. So I think um, the idea that this is a, lib- a liberal issue, um, that environmentalism is like, you know, the left. I don't like to conflate the left and liberals. Like they're not the same. That's not helpful right now. But like the liberals and Democrats and people who are left of center um, are the ones who care about the environment. Because historically that's really like not been true. Like this is a partic- particularly, I think, uh, ecological justice is an issue where people from all different places can come together. Like, you know, it affects poor fe- it, it affects poor folks. It affects people of color. Like it affect, affects rural folks and people from the city. Um, And I think part of the solution has to be at least attention to more um, smaller and more traditional ways of life. Um, Not like maybe traditional family structures necessarily, but like we have to start doing for ourselves and for one another in a way that's been lost. We have to relearn how to grow our food and share that food. Um, we have to learn how to mend our clothes and make our clothes so that we're not buying from, you know, like the, the fast fashion industry. Like, um, there's a really interesting history here in Arkansas and in, in, uh, Northwest Arkansas. There's like a subculture called hip billies, which is in the sixties, like all of these back to the land folks like moved to different parts of the country. And in Northwest Arkansas, they made relationships with, like the old timers there, like the mountain folks. And they demonstrated like good faith. And they were like, we really want to learn like how to live like self-sustainably. And it created this like interesting subculture of like rural folks and like more, like a lot, much more progressive, like hippies that came together and were able to teach one another things and to sort of like move toward a new way of organizing their lives. And that's necessary, right? Like we have to change the way that we live. And some of the change, much of the change, is going to be much smaller and much slower um, and much less flashy than we're used to. There are people who know how to do that. And some of those people are rural folks who think that environmentalism is just for liberals, but then they're fishing in lakes that are poisoned with mercury. And they're, you know, yeah. um, and like, there's so much middle, there's so much ground there for, 
for a genuine like coat like a <laughs> rainbow coalition to to form i think there's yeah. no one piece i think that if you really look at it broadly just like Brittany, you're an attorney nathan you done are, you're gonna be i'm see i'm speaking that into existence that's what's happening i'm just putting it out there for you okay okay <laughs> but everybody's fight is different you know everybody's resistance doesn't have to be standing in the street with a sign sometimes it's in a courtroom sometimes that resistance is in tilling the ground and growing food sometimes that resistance is in like marcia jackson does so wonderfully she's a dope spokesperson like she's in it so i think that broadly everybody needs to not feel like there's one thing or another you have to do the fact that you're aware and you want to do something play your strengths whatever that looks like and everybody's fight can look different but if we bring all of these different type of fights together now we have something comprehensive and we cooking with oil and that's that's where you really get that that long-term change but it's a slow burn mm -hmm. yes so we're coming up on the point where we start doing our leaves and takeaways so i have one question but i'm giving you that that's that's it's kind of like my one minute heads up um my my last question call i do have a question that i know that we talked about right before we got on um the cast and i kind of want <clears throat> to give all of you especially because you are in different places um an opportunity to tell um the audience like what are some things that should be on your radar even if it's just very specifically to where you are so we've talked a little bit about shingle mountain but are there other things that a that are that are kind of I hate to like make everything Flint worthy, right? Because it's all worthy, but something that maybe we don't know, for example, Shingle Mountain that we didn't know, is, is there something that should be on our radar? And then that other question um, that we were gonna let, that, that we elected uh, before the, the show started for Brittany to answer <laughs> about, um, about policies. And especially because we are coming into um, an election season, what are some things that we should, now that we have a better understanding of what environmental justice is, what are some things that when we see it on the ballot, when we see it on, um, or we hear it in, in discussions about issues, what are some things that we should be looking for? So that's the Brittany question, but also are there other things um, that should be on our radar? So I'm just gonna kind of give the floor to you guys look this and, and it could be as simple as look up this this and this it doesn't have to be where you give like a long dissertation about it but something as simple as look up these things so that we know a to put a link in the in the episode but b for us to be on the lookout for i would say look up um as we we talked about shingle mountain in dallas mm -hmm. uh, southern sector rising um dot org That'll give you education about some environmental. Um, also, Downwinders. Downwinders is uh, both what Misty and I both are on the board. And Downwinders does a lot of um, pollution studying. Is that it, Misty? Is that the right word? Downwinders at risk. Yeah, we do uh, citizen science, so citizen-led air quality monitoring. Um, before the pandemic, we were having regular trainings for that to allow people uh, to kind of take ownership in the work, you know, whether it's our work or whether you've got an issue in your own neighborhood that you wanted to address, you know, to kind of um, give that opportunity as well as kind of open the floodgates of this thing exists. 
so um yeah there's that but there's so many different uh areas that we're working on right now shingle mountain Joppy, west dallas midlothian so yeah we're all over the place but um it's necessary and i think that you know when you get with a, a group of people that that see the necessity marcia mr allen bonnie like that's what really keeps you going like you get emotionally involved with these people and the work and you see how just so necessary it is so that's how all of this stuff is looped together ssr downwinders etc so yeah um what else you got miss marcia as far as what needs to be on the island hills poor people's campaign yeah and uh, when when i ever had us do that zoning issue and that that was so educational you know you can just ride you can just ride in your neighborhood and you can look at um some kind of um companies or properties and if they owe for six feet of fence and you know that's illegal zoning so those kind of those things yeah i believe it was called pollution by zip code by evelyn mayo she did a whole study on it Mm -hmm. and that that's when we actually met dr bullard because he came to to discuss the study that was was done so um yes reach out to her she's in it and your dad is full of knowledge also janelle so e great that's my buddy so he knows a lot also i swear daddy knows everybody and everything i don't, I don't know how it happens but i'll say something he'll be like yeah i got somebody for you <laughs> thanks daddy appreciate it so i'm just sort of uh getting to know this area i was in school here i was an undergrad here in central arkansas um and that was a long time ago, seven, eight years. Um, and so I've sort of set myself to the task of, of getting to know this place and its history and its trauma. Um, I do know that Arkansas is home to, well, a number of controlling corporate interests, one of which is Walmart. Um, maybe you've heard of Walmart. Maybe. Uh, <laughs> um, but also Tyson, Tyson Chicken. Um, which has an incredibly outsized amount of influence in the food industry um, and which is implicated in all manner of ecological degradation um, and human rights abuses and worker abuses, um, employs immigrant labor in not very savory ways. Um, and so I'm sort of, you know, dig into that and figure out how that influences state politics and um, state ecology. Uh, so I know that's a thing to be paying attention to is just like, what is Tyson doing and how can they be stopped? Um, and uh, yeah, I think that's, yeah, I don't know. I don't know a whole lot. I'm sure there are, my, there are shingle mountains here, um, but I haven't, I haven't uncovered them yet. We will stay with you so that you can let us know um, so that we can make sure that we bring awareness to that, especially even on our social media accounts um, in any way that we can. Um, Brittany, before we, we'll, we'll land on you so that you could tell us what to look at. Great, great. A lot of, this is a lot of pressure on you. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. Well, yeah, Pennsylvania specifically, we have the Marcellus shale, which is like the, one of the largest, um, shales under pencil. I mean, in the country, it's under Pennsylvania goes into Ohio and it's, um, so like, I'm sure you've heard of fracking. So that's where they come in, um, dig a giant well into the bottom, shoot um, 
pressurized and water. Yeah, and, and water, uh, as well as an unnamed amount of dangerous chemicals uh, down in to get the gas to come back up. Obviously, gas leaks there, so that's an immediate issue. Second is now we have all this contaminated water. What do we do with it? Um, so back to the environmental justice, we choose a poor neighborhood and we just throw it in the ditch and then it becomes, uh, obviously it seeps into the drinking water. Um, and third issue is when you're drilling into tectonic plates, I mean, I will be the first to say I know nothing about science in the, especially not earth. I'm sure Nathan could come in here right now, but all I know is the bare minimum. You're drilling into a tectonic plate. All I know, all I heard about, learned about those was they cause something about earthquakes. They do. I can put that together. I think the people who are purposely doing it can probably do, or as well. Um, that's one of the biggest Pennsylvania issues. Um, also, we are like a coal state. We're known for that. So I was about to wrap back around to that seeing as I am the Beyond Coal organizer. <laughs> Shameless <Yeah>. plug. <laughs> Yes, that that that's an issue for all of us because I mean, especially here in Dallas, based on the modeling, everything that comes out of those stacks blows this way, and that mixed with transportation, local industry, the sun as a catalyst, and now we have really bad ozone problems, and that's something that we here in Dallas are known for is having those ozone problems. So, um, yeah, that's that's other work that's happening here, and yeah. And in terms of things to look out to, I would say educational resources um, that are easily and readily available. And it kind of ties into the earlier thing of how this um, area seems to be very whitewashed, but it's very ironic because the vast majority of like, whether it be scholars or just act like activist readings that I've done are from people of color, specifically black people in America. Um, I would definitely recommend, as as already said, the father of the movement. Um, and also, another plug on him is that Penn State, our Sustainability Institute, where I've been interning with, um, we're actually going to have Dr. Bullard as a guest on um, April 1st. Um, assuming it's probably going to be Zoom, but it's a free event, so like anyone can just kind of tune in and learn all they want. Um, a more immediate one if you want. I would also recommend um, TED Talks. I know you sent a few out. I'm not I'm not sure because I didn't get to watch all of them that you sent, but did you send one? Um, it was Peggy Shepherd's. I did I don't know that I sent it, but okay. I did see it. I, it was one of the one of the ones I watched. I did see that one. Okay. Oh, that's another plug I would definitely give because that's a great starting point because in her video she also mentions a ton of the organization organizations she's a part of and movements um, as well as local suit lawsuits. So it's like you, especially Jenna with the rabbit holes, maybe you shouldn't watch this one because the whole thing is just topic after topic after topic. <laughs> so you'd never, I'd you'd never do anything else. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, coming into elections, I would say, I mean, it would be impossible to talk about everybody's local things, but I would say local elections are what's most important. Um, it's yeah. definitely going to make the most immediate impact. Yeah. A national, just a random, not random, but one of the most important, I think, um, national bills that are in the make, or it's not passed, obviously, yet, recently put forward was um, through AOC and um, Kamala Harris together um, introduced this bill. 
Um, and it is, I'm trying to remember, it's like the Climate Equity Act of 2020. Um, and it, one is going to, it's made to establish oversight committees so that we can look at the environmental effect of laws and going forward, because that's something that now we rarely do. So that's an important behind the scenes step, as well as it's um, attempting to get people and more representatives of people that are actually impacted by these environmental issues at the table and give them a voice, which is something I recently read. Um, Austin Channing Brown wrote, I'm still here. Um, I'm not sure if you read it. It's uh, black dignity in a world made for whiteness. Um, technically, I think it's written more of the scope of churches and like integrating diversity in church, but I do think it can be applied outside of just the religious organizations. Something she said, specifically looking into how to get, become more diverse is, and it's making common sense, is actually, you know, having people of color in the room and having them have a voice at, in decision-making in where the company should be striving to next because you can't just call them up and you know you can't have a designated token person and be like hey just want to get an opinion real quick cool so now we can say it was a diverse board it's like you need people being the actual decision makers and and the way she said it was you know if you don't actually bring black people on board then your diversity is essentially still white you're just you know having black people as sprinkles on top because it's not systemically changed and so i think that's the biggest thing, and I think systemic change ultimately starts at that local level, because that's something, as we've been saying, it gets so overwhelming if you look at the world and you're like, holy crap, what can I do? Likely nothing in one day. But if you look at your local city, your local community, however you define that, there's, uh, there's I promise, going to be a lot of things you can do. And I mean, two people, I guess all of you guys on the call actually are specifically linked in with local organizations. And I think that ultimately will make the biggest decision or impact. So let's round out our leads and takeaways. It's going to be really simple for me, everything. Um, but for the rest of you, um, what are, what are your leaves and takeaways? If you wanted to leave something very specific for the audience, if let's say they fast forwarded through most of what we said and they got to the end, what is your leave? What do you want them to walk away with most? And then what will you be taking away from the conversation? Educate themselves more on uh, environmental issues. You know, uh, get involved. Contact your local officials because you, you have to pay attention because you might not think it happened to you, but the next time you turn around, it might be right next door to you. Um, I think my leaves will be um, actually two quotes from Asada Shakur, because I just absolutely love her. Uh, the first being, nobody in the world, nobody in the history has ever gotten their freedom by appealing to the moral sense of the people who were oppressing them. So that's the first. And then the second is people get used to anything. The less you think about your oppression, the more your tolerance for it grows. After a while, people just think oppression is the normal state of things. But to become free, you have to be acutely aware of being a slave. And so I would love for people to kind of think about that, mull over it, meditate on it, because um, I think those are very powerful statements and they're very true. 
Um, as far as my takeaways, I think that I just met some really dope people that are doing some different work that I want to learn more about. So I, I'm leaving with the to-do list. <laughs> I want to leave people with the connection between intersectionality and ecology, um, particularly as an end for thinking about both of those things in some new ways. And then adjacent to that, um, the insight that as humans, we are situated creatures and we are our environments, that we're never separate from what's happening around us, um, which means we have a great responsibility to live um, as well as we can with all of the things that are around us. And so um, that's really huge and wide. And um, I'm going to echo like Marsha's, like we need to educate ourselves and have a sense of humility because everything is connected in ways that are vaster than we can possibly comprehend, which means that we just don't know. Uh, we just don't know a lot. And there's a lot we have. And it doesn't have to be a burden. It can be a gift. The world is full of wonder and we can become better through that pursuit. Um, and I think if we just ask questions with humility, then we'll find, we'll find the people and the organizations and the work to do. Um, and I'm definitely going to take away from this. Yeah. Just like, um, I love hearing other people in other places that are doing their own things that are also very similar to the things that are happening here. Um, because the struggle, you know, it is uh, the same and it's different in every place. And it's difficult for me to hold on to hope sometimes, um, but it's most easy when I'm, I'm hearing from other people who are doing the work. I don't know why I put myself in this position to go last. I should have gone first, so I didn't have to follow anyone. <laughs> um, okay, as a leaving comment, I suppose, it's that to echo again on the education, educate yourself, but also be mindful of the information you're taking in, like where it came from and who's saying it. Um, to our earlier conversations on, you know, the importance of recycling. You know, who's telling you that it's someone that it's a corporation or, or an entity that has such a bigger stake in this game that they want to flip it around and make it on you. So instead, especially in, in issues of environmental justice, listen to the people that are affected, like listen to the communities that are going through this, not the rich white company. That's the one that's putting the plant. Don't listen to them because, of course, they're going to give it a good perspective because they're making millions listen to the people that they just lost their backyard and you know maybe a child like listen to people that are affected um as my takeaway i would say learning like just all five of us in the room right now do completely different things and all five of us in the room obviously have an interest in environmental justice or else we wouldn't be here or we wouldn't be asking the questions so the takeaway is that whoever you are and wherever you are, whatever you do, there's a way that you can get involved and it doesn't have to look like what you think it does. Like it doesn't have to be that tree hugger. It doesn't have to be in a courtroom. It doesn't have to be policy. It's something local and it's everybody. I think what I'll summarize as my takeaway is on top of all of this, you know, cynicism, have a little optimism. I know it's hard, but there's always something you can do and every little bit ultimately does count. So that's my take. So 
Um, like I said, my takeaway is everything. My leave is everything. Um, but um, I am super grateful to you guys taking a moment to like talk to me and tell me um, these things. I, I do realize that I am rabbit hole prone, so I will fall into all of them. Um, but that does, it does make me say to the, to, to the audience this in terms of a leave is pick a place and do the work really, because you could, you could fall down this rabbit hole as I have already done and hit your head on like 12 different issues. Um, and, and, and that will be like the first part of the fall that won't even be like the full fall. Um, so, um, I guess the leave and the takeaway for me is just pick a place. You're not going to do everything and change everything as Brittany said overnight. Um, and so, um, that is that is my leave and takeaway. I'm definitely a part. Yes, yes, go for Sorry, it. I don't want to do this, but I'm. It's too late. I'm in it. That I had to add something, and yeah. it. I knew it, and I forgot it until you just said it. And it's something that's inspiring, and a little bit of optimism to come in it. Is another quote from the book I was mentioning. Austin Channing Brown said, "I mean, first is that there's never been a time." similar to the quote you said, but this one is there's never been a time that all white people came together and decided let's end slavery. There's never been a time all white people came together and decided let's pass the equal protection law. Like, you know, there's never been a time everybody came together to make this change. But what's inspiring is that we, that doesn't matter because there's people here now that are ready to do the work and are actively doing the work. So we don't need to wait for the 15% that are just never going to change their mind. And instead we can coordinate with the rest of us that are ready and together we can ultimately make a lot of change. I like it. I li- and actually that's how we'll end this. That's true. <laughs> She's like, Oh crap. No, that's, that's like that, that, that works very well. I'm super, super grateful to all of you. And also thank you for all of the work that you're doing. I will personally be following all of you guys so that I can, really honestly, but just transparently follow on your coattails and figure out, I'll just, I'll pick up the things that you guys are dropping. That's what I'll do. I'll just hop on everybody's coattails and pick up the things um, and, and, and do what I can um, to make sure that we continue to bring light to this. Thanks so much for, um, for, for just being here and for taking a moment. I know you guys have busy lives. COVID has you at home with children and jobs and things that, oh, that face, that face. <laughs> yes, I'm so sick of them. I love them. I always say parenting is like, for real, a case study in Stockholm Syndrome. I'm in love with my abusers. <laughs> so awful, but I love them. <laughs> what the best thing actually no. that, that might be the least takeaway that's parenting for you so all you parents homeschooling <laughs> in 2020 you are not alone <laughs> so yeah i think you guys you've got busy work schedules and school schedules and you guys made it work and came to educate little old me and so i truly, truly appreciate it um for everybody else listening create hope forge a path change the world and we'll see you next episode Thank you.